So I'm just going to start. But my name is Chris Jenkins. I'm a family physician from Tulsa, Oklahoma. I work with Inna's Image, uh, which is a family medicine residency program there. And I, as, in addition to being a faculty member, I've also lead quite a few of their short-term trips, medical education mission trips, various places where we're involved. And this session is uh, titled A Biblical Perspective on Suffering. So if that's what you wanted, you're in the right place. And if it wasn't, I hope you stay. So anyone, let, let's start with prayer first. Let's start with prayer. Father, thank you for your presence with us. And uh, just pray you take this message and encourage people. Uh, speak to our hearts. And Holy Spirit, you're the one who inspired the written word. We pray that you would translate it for us, interpret it for us as you intended it to be understood. Give us wisdom, Lord. Give us understanding. And again, encourage us, speak to our hearts, and be with us, and make this a, a fruitful hour. In Jesus' name, amen. So, anyone who's going to follow Jesus is going to suffer in one way or another. And we're all, we've all been through suffering. We're all going to go through suffering. And those of you who are planning to work cross-culturally may even experience additional suffering, adjusting to another culture, uh, learning a language, going through normal uh, trials of life in, another, in a setting you're not used to. It doesn't have your normal support systems. So suffering is common to, to mankind, and it's common in the church, and the Bible has a lot to say about it. And so this talk is uh, just a brief introduction to a biblical perspective on suffering. I say A because there are other, I think, facets to suffering that we need to understand beyond what I'll be able to talk about this morning, beyond what we have time to talk about. So I don't want you to feel like this is an exhaustive final word on suffering. I'm not pretending it to be that way, but I think it's a very helpful perspective. Um, There is so much more that could be said in other passages beyond what what I've chosen this morning, and so I want to encourage you to read, study, and meditate on not only these verses that we're going to cover this morning, but others as well, so we understand better what God is doing in our lives through the common uh, experience of suffering. And I'm going to go ahead and just uh, tell you the main theme here. Uh, of my main point of my talk, and I'll repeat it in different ways as we go through. Uh, but I, I think it's important enough to just get it out front and not wait for you to guess what it is. And that is that all that God allows us to, that nothing uh, touches our lives without God's knowledge and permission, that all that he allows to touch us is for our good and his glory and to accomplish his purposes for us and through us. There's nothing that touches us without his knowledge and permission. Therefore, we can rejoice in all our troubles just as we rejoice in all the good things God brings into our lives as we see him working in our lives through them. So, um, I do want to give a caveat here. I'm not a personal expert in suffering. I'm not holding myself up a model as a model of this is how you do it and follow my example. You know, uh, I've never been tortured for my faith. I've never been imprisoned for my faith. Uh, I think the, the degree of suffering I've had in my life is the normal garden variety bumps and bruises of life that we all go through. I'm sure some of you have gone through much more than I have. And if we went around and asked each one what have, what has it, what have been your experiences of suffering, many of you would bring us to tears uh, with the awareness of what you've gone through or maybe family members or friends have gone through. So I'm not positing myself as this is how you do it. But I think God has given me a few insights on what he, he wants to do in our suffering. And secondly, suffering is very personal and subjective. Um, what, what, what might cause one person to have uh, severe suffering spiritually, psychologically, physically, another might just brush off and say, oh, that was nothing, and vice versa. So it's very personal, it's very individual and subjective. And I've, I'm a physician, I've had patients come in and tell me, doctor, I've got a very high pain tolerance, but this hangnail is killing me. Would you give me some opioids for it or something strong? And on the other hand, I've had patients come in and you wonder why they're not rolling around screaming on the floor with their injury, their illness, their cancer, or whatever it may be. So it's very, you know, the situations we encounter in life are very, are responded to very individually, and we're going to do the same. We're all, we all have or will suffer, and how we respond will be very individual. And so we can't really judge each other too much on our reactions to pain. So let's begin. Why do people suffer? Why do Christians suffer? Well, there's probably as many opinions and answers to that question as there are Christians. And uh, some might say, well, we live in a fallen world, and so that's just the way it is. Uh, some would say, well, it's to be avoided if all possible. And hang on to Jesus and get through and get to heaven and get it over with. Or suffering is all from the devil. Or it's a result of personal sin. And you know, that's what Job's friends told him. If you would just confess your sin, the suffering would be over and God would forgive you. Or it's because of the lack of faith. And if you just had more faith, if you would never have gone through this, and uh, you need to grow and, and trust God and memorize and quote more verses or something. Well, there's, there is some truth in each one of these points, and, but even altogether, these points don't encompass the purposes and reasons for suffering that the Bible talks about. Um, so let's begin. 
Let's start looking at what the Bible has to actually say about suffering, at least the verses I'm going to talk about this morning, and how we can look at, look at it and how our perspective on it might be benefited or changed. And so starting with Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And, and who wouldn't do that? Who would not exult in the hope of the glory of God? Seeing God in his glory, being in his presence, uh, having un, unbroken fellowship with him, experiencing life as he intended it to be lived, and fellowship with him and one another, that's something to exult about. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. It's a mouthful. So he starts out using a word, the word exult, in two separate phrases. We exult in the hope of the glory of God. And again, who wouldn't do that if you know what that really means? And then he says immediately afterwards, and, we, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. And it's almost, you know, if, if I think about it, it's almost blasphemous. You know, how can I, on the one hand, compare exulting in this glorious being, this perfect, all-powerful, loving, kind, merciful, righteous being, and exulting in the idea of being with him, on the one hand, and then turn around and say, exult in the dirty, bloody, sweaty, painful tribulations of life. I mean, how do those two go together? The word he uses is exactly the same, and it has at least it has several meanings. But a couple of them. One would be leap for joy. You know, leaping for joy. You're so excited about something. Say, yeah, bring it on. You know, this is great. <laughs> Come on, Lord, I want to exult in your presence. And the other uh, one I want to focus on, the other meaning is to boast or glory or shout in victory over an adversary that you've defeated or in a competition that you've won. And it's a victorious shout. And I think of uh, if you've seen the, the movie Braveheart. William Wallace on the battlefield after they defeated the English heady horse and he just raises his sword and gives up this guttural victory shot. You know, It's kind of victory over the enemies, covered with blood and dirt and all the rest. But both of those ideas are here. It's a, a shot of joy and a shot of victory. And one or the other may weigh more heavily in a particular circumstance. Um, but Paul is not a masochist. He doesn't say we just exult in uh, tribulation for the sake of having tribulation. Uh, he had reasons uh, for exalting. He said, "We exalt. Not only this, we also exalt in our tribulation, knowing that tribulation does something. Well, what does it do? And there was something beneficial. Let's just jump right in. It produces perseverance. And you know that perseverance is the ability to go through something difficult to the end, or finish something and start something, not give up. And uh, that's you know just a kind of common definition. It's an accurate one. It applies here too. But I want to add a couple of." Uh, aspects or facets to it that have a more biblical or scriptural application. Uh, Perseverance in this sense is the ability to go through any trial without compromising my faith. And you think of Job and all that he went through. He lost all of his children. He lost all of his wealth, most of his servants. He lost the support of his wife and eventually he lost his health. The only thing he didn't lose was his life. (coughs) Excuse me. And, and he, he complained about it. He didn't think it was just. He thought, God, why are you allowing this to happen? And he said, if I could stand before God, I would present my case and tell him why this is not the right thing. This was, these are awful things. You think about losing your children, losing all your wealth, losing your health, your family's falling apart. But what did he say in the end? Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. I don't know why this is happening. But though he slay me, yet I will trust him. And God commends him. He said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? You incited me to ruin him without cause, and still he maintains his integrity. He didn't accuse God of doing evil, even though he didn't understand what God was doing. So perseverance is the ability to go through trial, serious trial, without compromising our faith. Secondly, it's the ability to go through trial without compromising my integrity. And you think of Joseph. Joseph was about 17 years old when his brothers decided they wanted to kill him. But instead they sold him to some traders who brought him to Egypt where he was bought by a high-ranking official. And he could easily have said, well, God is not blessing me. I asked him to preserve me and protect me. And he let me be sold by my own brothers into slavery. And here I am in a foreign land. I can't communicate with my family. And I don't have an idea, any idea what's going to happen to me. And while he was there, his owner's wife tried to seduce him. She was attracted to him. And it says day after day she tried to seduce him. And finally he ran out saying, how can I do this great sin against God and my master? And he ran out and then, of course he was thrown in prison. 
But he didn't compromise his integrity, even though things were going very badly for him in this trial. And thirdly, it's without compromising my obedience. And you can think of Paul and many other people. You know, Paul was called to bring the gospel to the Gentile world. He had a new message. He was going new places, doing something no one else had done. And and and, and root in doing this, he was whipped by the Jews five times. You know, forty lashes minus one, so thirty-nine stripes with a whip. He was beaten with rods several times. He was stoned that they thought to death, shipwrecked, uh, confronted by hostile Jews. Uh, false brothers, arrested multiple times, over and over again. These things took place throughout his life, not all at once and then you're over with it, but throughout his life they happened at various times. But he kept on co- uh, uh, keeping his call, being obedient to his call. And, and perseverance is what allowed him to do that. He persevered in obeying his call uh, without giving up in spite of the troubles and trials he went through. So that, Paul says, leads to proven character. And, you know, tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance proven character. Well, you know, we all read the Bible and we admire the qualities that many of the people we have in the Bible, you know, especially and certainly Jesus Christ, but also Old Testament men and women, New Testament men and women. We wish, boy, I wish I had their courage or, boy, I wish I was as uh, faithful as they were or kind or compassionate or giving or sacrificial or faithful, whatever it might be. I wish I could be that way. And Paul says that tribulation, which produces perseverance, leads to proven character. And what is proven character? What is the the Bible's primary model of proven character? Anyone have a guess on that? Jesus Christ. Jesus is the model of perfect human character. So what Paul is saying here is that this tribulation that we don't like so much, which also produces uh, perseverance, makes us like Jesus Christ. It molds us and shapes us into the image of Christ that, that, that God wants us to reflect. And, and uh, make the, makes the things that we've read about in the Bible and, and desire and wish we had part of it. So it's like the potter, you know, we have the clay on the wheel, he's spinning it and he's moving it and shaping it, gets it in the shape he wants, and then he puts it in the fire to make it permanent. So we're reading and we're being molded and we're being shaped, and then he puts us in the fire to make it permanent in our lives. Uh, so, so it won't be broken later, it won't be removed from us. So he says... Let's see, whoops, I got ahead of myself. And so then proven character, Paul says, produces hope, which does not disappoint. Sorry, I'm one behind myself here. And what is hope? Hope is uh, the expectation or the anticipation that something that's been promised is going to be received uh, or something that you're working toward will be achieved, you know, a reward or something. But something out in front of us that we don't yet have, we will have. And God, of course, has made many promises to us. He's given us the promise of forgiveness of sin if we put our faith in Christ, of salvation, of eternal life with Him, ruling and reigning with Him through eternity. There are many, many promises, perfect health, perfect life, perfect fellowship, all these things, and then the unimaginable, whatever He has planned for us throughout eternity. So there's a lot of promises. But as we go through, um, persevere through trials, we see one of His promises being fulfilled in front of our very eyes here on this planet. One of the, one of the, maybe even most hard, maybe one of the more difficult ones to believe that we will be made like Jesus Christ. You know, Paul says in Romans 8, 28, all, all things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, of his son Jesus Christ. So as we go through trials and we go through our very worst, most painful, darkest experiences of life, when we wonder how am I going to get out of this? Will I survive? Is God with me? He brings us through, and we see that he used those terrible situations to fulfill his promise to make us like Jesus. And as we see that over and over again, we see how much easier it will be for him to fulfill the rest of his promises. If he can, make, if he can fulfill this promise, in part at least, through trouble, how much more will he fulfill all the other promises just that lie ahead of us just as a matter of time and just going to heaven? So our hope is enhanced, it's made alive, it's made stronger. And it motivates us to keep pursuing him because if we see him doing these things in our lives now, how much more do we want to pursue him to achieve and receive everything else he's also got promised for us? So that's one of his reasons for allowing us to go through trials. We see ourselves being transformed and we expect that the rest of the things he's promised will be uh, produced as well. So tribulation, which produces perseverance, which produces proven character, also produces hope. And as Paul said, it does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. And I think this last phrase is um, the last one in this verse, this section of verses I want to focus on, but, and it's kind of the culmination of these four or five verses. 
but it produces a hope which, uh, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts by the Holy Spirit has been given to us. And I think there's probably several ways you can look at it, but there's at least two that I want to highlight. And one is, we are sensitized, because of all these things, to the love that God has for us. You know, as I go through trials, uh, you know, as we all go through trials, and whenever I say I, I'm meeting all, all of us, uh, as we go through trials and see that God has not forsaken me, he's brought me through, he's done good things uh, for me and in me, he's protected me, I come to believe that he really does plan for me, he did, really does orchestrate events for me, and not just the super saints. You know, I'm not uh, a B-teamer and everyone, all the big guys are A-teamers, but he's doing that for me, just as the, he's doing it for people who I admire or, my, or I might consider models or mentors for me. He's doing the same thing for me, and I come to really believe and understand that he does love me. I'm not just an afterthought. When I first became a Christian, I used to think, uh, well, God accepted me because he had to, because I believed in Jesus, <laughs> God the Father. Not because he loved me like everyone. He just kind of had to take me in because I put my faith in Jesus. And it took quite a while before I really came to really fully be confident and assured that, you know, he really does love me too, just as much as everybody else. But as we go through these trials, that assurance of his love becomes almost tangible. He's with me. He's not forsaken me. He's planning for me. He's orchestrating my steps. And he, it's not. And these things are not by chance. These things that come into my life as, as difficulties are not just coincidences or chances. So, and then secondly, we are enlarged in our capacity to love others with the same kind of love that God has loved us. You know, Jesus' final command was to us, this new commandment. He said, this, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Not just love your neighbor as yourself, but love one another as I have loved you. That's a notch multiple times above that first one. And we are enabled to love others with the same love that we receive because we have, first of all, we've become confident and secure in the love that God has for us individually. And that helps us deal with any jealousy we might have or insecurity we might have about the successes that others might have or the love that God might have for them. Because we come to realize their successes and God's love for them individually does not diminish his love for me. And so I'm freed up to love them as God has loved me and rejoice in their successes, encourage them, weep with their failures or struggles and be sincere about it and not uh, fake it or have to force it. And we begin to be able to exhibit the agape love that Christ talks about, that the Bible talks about. So Paul learned this aspect of the secret anyway with tribulation. And the key is that God is in control of all the things, all the events in our lives. It's not just some things. We're not going through life and things just happen by chance or accidentally. But he's in control. He's the one that allows and regulates the events of our lives. And he does it for our good. Uh, And he does these things. He allows the difficulties to make us like Christ, to enable us to know him better, and to do his work through us more effectively as we become more Christ-like and more uh, capable or complete vessels for him to pour his grace through. And, and Paul recognized that. He said, if, if this is what tribulation does in my life, if it gives me the power, the strength to go through anything without denying my Lord and, deny, and compromising my integrity or breaking my uh, obedience to him, if it allows me to develop and be more Christ-like, if it enhances my hope and if it makes me know the Lord better and makes me a better reflection of him, he says, basically, bring it on. You know, um, And I'll, bring, I'll get to that in a second, but... That's what he said, we, why we exalt, because of all those good things. And we all know the love chapter, right? What's the love chapter? 1 Corinthians 13. You know, it's sung in weddings, it's quoted in weddings, it's on bulletins, it's on posters. And it starts out, you know, love is patient, love is kind, and then it goes on to the, for the rest of it. It finishes up, now remain these three, three things, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. And we all would like to have that kind of love. We want to receive it, we want to give it. It's a, it's a very high value in the kingdom of God. Well, the author of those words was Paul, just as, as he's the author of the words here in Romans 5, 1 through 5. And interesting enough, all three of those things, faith, hope, and love, are mentioned in those five verses. For by faith we have been justified and we have peace with God. And then he goes on to say, tribulation produces perseverance, character, and hope which does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And I think he's kind of saying, if you like 1 Corinthians 13, learn to embrace Romans 5, 1 through 5. <laughs> learn to recognize that tribulation is one of the tools. It's not the only tool, but it's certainly one of the tools that God uses to shape us and to mold us and to produce that love in us. Not only for, between us and God, but between us and other people. And that's why God says, bring it on. 
Rejoice in tribulation. Exalt in tribulation. And then let's go to the next set of verses. James 1, 2 through 4. And I know you know these verses, but I just want to highlight them. They're so valuable. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. That word again. And let perseverance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So he first says, consider. When you enter into a trial, you encounter a trial, don't panic. Don't freak out. Don't run. Consider. Don't forget who is in control of your life, first of all. And don't forget what he's doing in your life. He's creating. You know, all of us are made in the image of God. We're all created, men and women created in the image of God. And, uh, but I would wonder if uh, someone from uh, some space alien came in and landed and was out here in the square and walked in the room and said, what are you? And we would answer and said, we are men and women made in the image of God. Would he say, wow, who is this God that I might serve him to? Or would he say, hmm, what else you got going on here on this earth? None of us are perfect. We've got a lot of carnality left in us. We're, we're wise, not wise and everything. We're weak. We have our flaws. But he is molding us. He is continuing to make us in his image to be like Jesus Christ. So we need to remember these things and consider this. And the word trial, just you, may, you probably know this too, but it has at least two meanings. It does mean trial, like we think, you know, a difficult situation, but also includes the idea of temptation. And if you think about it, it's very easy for the two to go, to go together. I may have a trial that's difficult that leads me to tempt to the temptation to doubt and question God. Where are you? Why, why are you allowing this? You're not as good as you said you were. You, know, you promised me this and you didn't do it and, and uh, doubt God. So a, a trial can become a temptation and a temptation can become a trial. You know, tempted to say or do something or think something you shouldn't and it becomes a struggle to resist it. Maybe it's something that you used to do as a Christian, as a non-Christian. You still have the desire and you're struggling to, to avoid it. So the two go together. Trials and temptations two go together. So he says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials and temptations, basically. And it's various. It's not just one category or another. It's all, it's all kinds of trials and temptations. It doesn't matter what it may be. Relationships, finances, plans for the future, family problems, this, that, health, whatever. Various trials. The whole human range of trials. And, uh, and that's what he's saying to consider it all joy about. Um, so what do you consider it when you encounter a trial? Uh, do you consider it all joy or is it something of an obstacle to get around? Is it something that causes you fear? Is it something just to endure, like I said before, and just get to heaven and out of this world or something to escape? Consider it all joy. Consider it all joy. And why? Well, James, like Paul, was not a masochist. It wasn't pain for pain's sake. He had, but he had his reasons to consider it all joy. And it was knowing that trials will do something good in you. Again, it produces perseverance. And uh, he said, you know, uh, which is the ability to go through anything without compromising our faith or integrity or obedience. So this is very important uh, to Paul and James. Perseverance is. And he says, he says uh, that, that our trials produce perseverance. And then he says, let and perseverance have its perfect result. And what he means by that is, don't quit. Don't give up. Don't go halfway through it and then sit down or turn back or doubt God and, and, and become disobedient. Go through it. Let the trial and let your perseverance enable the trial to have its perfect result in your life so that you can get the benefit that God planned in your life by allowing it in your life in the first place. There's something that he wants you to experience and gain through this trial. And I have another kind of a secondary definition for perseverance. Perseverance is the capacity to receive the transforming work of God in our lives. Again, going back to that image of a potter and the clay, uh, you know, when, they, when the potter takes that lump of clay, he throws it on the wheel, he starts spinning, he starts putting pressure on it, molding it, and shaping it, and squeezing it, and pulling it, and stretching it, and doing this, that, and the other. Well, if you and I have that lump of clay, and he's pushing, and squeezing, and pulling, and stretching, and spinning, we might say, get me off of this thing. I'm getting vertigo. I, I'm about to throw up. It's too painful. I don't want to be here anymore. But we need to stay there while he's doing these things so that he can put us in the shape he wants to be, put us in that fiery kiln and make it permanent. So perseverance is our capacity to receive the transforming work of God in our lives. And and, and that's why they value it so much, that we can endure what God allows in our lives to receive the benefit that he's planned for our lives, both personally and in ministry and and whatever else he he has in mind to to allow something into our lives for. 
So that, and so that, the reason, of course, is so that you will be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Sorry for the busyness of this slide. Uh, but the purpose of slides is to perfect you and make you complete. Um, and we need to endure to the end to get the benefit that he's planned. And he does say it's a test. Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces all these things. Again, it's not chance. And it's not just Satan like a pinball in a machine bouncing off here and there and we might get hit and we might not get hit. It's a test. And tests are administered. And then the administrator of this test is God. He is giving a test, let me put that back for a second, that, he, that is not designed to destroy us, but to prove us. Where are we weak? Where are we strong? What do we need to build up? Where do we need to improve? And where can we build upon and go on to the next thing? It's to show us where we need to grow by going through an actual situation. And he is, it is God the tester. He administers it. He watches us. He grades us on, not on the curve. <laughs> it's on Jesus' standard. That's his standard. But he is testing us. And so consider it all joy. But what is tested? Well, the, the test itself, or the trial itself, may be uh, a relational problem, a, f- a fight between two people. Again, it could be a health problem, a loss of a loved one. Financial ruin, bankruptcy, could be like in the Middle East right now, Syria and Iraq, where people are losing everything and their loved ones are dying, they're being tortured. Uh, it could be very severe. But that's and, and all those things may be worked on, your ability to have good relationships, your ability to handle finances, do the right thing with them, <coughs> plan for the future, what have you. But that's not what's being tested. It's your faith that's being tested. The old faith questions come up again and again and again until we until we give a good answer. The old questions of uh, is God still with me? Is his grace sufficient for me in this situation? Is he angry with me? Has he, has he stopped loving me? Have I outsinned his grace and forgiveness? Are his promises still valid for me? And many, many other questions that come up when we're in the middle of something that's distressing and we wonder if we're on the right track. Did I get off track? Is God with me? Uh, is he going to be with me? Have I, have I uh, been put aside? And as you go through trials and you see that he has been with you and he is with you, your faith is enlarged, your relationship with Jesus is deepened, your character is perfected because you see that he can handle it. His grace is sufficient. His promises are still valid. His plans are still in effect for you. You haven't gotten off the track. Or maybe he was direct, redirecting you through a trial. It wasn't that you're off track. He's just redirecting you. And that you can trust him for everything. Eventually he wants us to know that there's no situation that you have to fear. You know, uh, well... I'll come to this a little later, I guess. But he wants us to know there's no situation that we have to fear, that he's able to handle everything. And he takes us through different trials until we do know that. Now, often we have joy in retrospect, and that's a very normal thing. We go through something difficult. It's painful. We don't know what the purpose of it is. And when we're in the middle of it, we don't know if it's ever going to end or when it's going to end. But finally it does, and we can look back and say, oh, that's what God wanted to do. Oh, I can see the benefit. How I see how it helped our relationship or made me grow up in this area this way. Thank you, Lord. I wouldn't trade that for anything. And that's very normal. But I think as we go through trials over and over again, we, come to, we do come to know that all things work together for good. All things work together for good. Not some things or a few things or a few things I can handle, but all things work together for good for those who love God. We eventually can rejoice in the trial even before we know what, what the purpose is or without knowing what the purpose is or we don't know when it's going to end. But we've come to know that God is trustworthy um, and that God allowed this thing that we're in the middle of right now for his glory and my good. I don't know what it is. I don't know how it's going to glorify him. I don't know how it's going to work out. But by faith, we know that he's got a track record that's trustworthy and I can trust him for this one too. Um, and I want to share a personal experience that's still fresh for me and uh, common to all of you. If you haven't experienced it already, you, know, you will eventually. Most of you will. Uh, my father died uh, September 17th. He was 90 years old. He lived a very full life. And uh, uh, we were pretty close. So when he died, it was pretty painful. He became a Christian when he was 60. And those last 30 years were even better. Uh, but so when he, and he was frail, but mentally he was fully engaged with everybody. He was, he was mentally sharp, alert. He wondered who was going to win the election. He was probably disappointed he didn't make it to November 8th. <laughs> uh, and uh, 
So when he died, although he was frail mentally, he was so engaged, it was still kind of a shock, you know. Um, and it just hit hard. It was, you know, painful. And you know, I loved him a lot, so it was very painful. But I also it was painful not only because I loved him, but because I realized how much I depended on him, even at my age. You know, he's, he was a rock in the family. He's a cardiothoracic surgeon, and he fit the type. And uh, uh, just a very strong personality and just a rock in the family. And it made me realize when he died how much I depended on him, even at my age, just as a presence in my life. And, and it kind of shook me, uh, which made it even more difficult. And, and so I had to ask the Lord, well, Lord, how can I consider this joy? Or how can I exult in this? Uh, how do you exult in something like this? And you can, and it, but it requires taking the words of Jesus Christ more seriously. It, it requires enlarging our frame of reference. And my father was mentally sharp, physically very frail, had a lot of pain, very weak, very frustrated with life because he'd always been very active until about a year before his death. Now he is in heaven. He's whole, he's complete, he's full of joy, he's in the presence of the living God. How can I begrudge him that? How could I wish that he was here because I miss him when now he's in the presence of God, whole and complete? And for me, it has resulted in, as a process through this and gone through this, transferring whatever dependency or reliance I had on him to the Lord where it should be. And I'm finding my own faith is being strengthened. I'm growing in my relationship with him. And I've experienced an intimacy with the Lord in these recent weeks that is different from what I've had before. And so it does work together for good. And uh, it's helping. It's, it's been good for my dad. It's been good for me and my siblings who have also been through the same process. It's good for those who know him because it's focusing us back on the Lord and the fact that we're going to be reunited. And, 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 and finally, on this point, um, I know it's only going to be 20 or 30 years before I see him again anyway. And I'll share my theology with you. I know that the Lord either is going to return and reunite us all, or I'm going to die and go to him and be reunited with him anyway. So it's only about 20 or 30 years and we'll be back with him anyway. So it's not that long, not that far off. So all things do work together for good. We can rejoice in our trials, even while in the middle of them they seem very, very painful. And I miss them, and I know I'm always going to miss them. But I have that expectation and hope that I'm going to see him again, and that he's in a place that he wouldn't want to come back from. So... Anyway, we get to the point where we can thank and praise him now for the painful experience we're going through now. And then 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 11. These are great verses. And uh, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, remember Paul had been taken up into the third heaven, which he also called paradise. And he heard things he wasn't even permitted to speak. He, you know, there's a lot of revelations recorded in the Bible that we are permitted to read about. You know, the book of Revelation itself is incredible revelation. And, and dreams and visions and revelations people have in the Old and New Testament. But this one, he wasn't allowed to share. It was very personal. He wasn't allowed to share it except that he went up to the third heaven and heard things he's not permitted to speak. And I think it's probably because of that unique call he had as one of the first apostles and doing some of the first things. He needed to be strengthened. He needed to be encouraged. And God gave it to him as a strengthener. But as a result of this thing, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. He said that twice. Concerning this, I implored the Lord. I pleaded with him. I begged him. Lord, take it away. Three times he said that. And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So, Paul gave, <coughs> received this exceptional vision and would have the temptation to exalt himself, to become proud, to exalt himself, to become proud. But to God, it was more important that he stay humble than that he exalt himself over visions. And so, God is Paul's father. <coughs> Uh, he loved Paul. And in his love for him, he gave him some prophylaxis for the temptation to pride. Prophylactic dose here. Paul said there was given to him a thorn in the flesh. It didn't just float around and pop him in the side one day. It was given to him. It's a gift from God. Well, wait a minute. It says a messenger from Satan. It is a messenger from Satan. The word messenger there in Greek is angelos or angel. The same word that the angel of the Lord appeared to Mary and announced the good news. Or the angel of the Lord came to John and said, you know, take this message, you eat this scroll. It's an angel. Of course, it's a fallen angel or a demon that was sent. And so God allowed a messenger from Satan to torment him. And the word torment is the same word that they use of Jesus when the Roman guards were buffeting him in the face with a fist, striking him over and over again. Basically, it means to strike repeatedly. So it wasn't a light affliction, whatever it was. We don't know. It wasn't light, but it was, 
it was uh, painful, and he asked the Lord to take it away three times. And I, and I wanted just a little bit more on that whole thing about a demon. Uh, you know, Satan attacked Job and was, uh, was able to kill all his kids and take his wealth, but he was not able to do that until God gave him permission. You know, God picked the fight with Satan. It wasn't the other way around. God came to Satan and said, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him in the East. Righteous, turning away from evil, fearing God. And he said, well, the only reason he does that is because you put a hedge of thorns around him and prospered in everything he does. Of course he would. Who wouldn't if you would do that for him? But you take those things away and he'll curse your face. Then God said, okay, you can do it. Until God said, okay, you can do it, Satan could not do it. He had no right, had no power, no authority to touch his life. God gave him the authority. He gave him permission. It's like having a Doberman pincher behind a fence that you have on a leash and kids going back and forth to school are out there and you let the gate open. Who's responsible? The Doberman Pinscher or the owner? Well, God let him loose on Job, but for his purpose and not for Satan's purpose. Satan wanted to destroy Job. God wanted to build Job and, and give a message to mankind through his life and his response that we have and read to this that we have and know and read to this day. <clears throat> so <clears throat> Paul had not yet become proud. He was not sinning, he wasn't double minded. But God gave him this gift to keep him from from exalting himself. As Paul said twice, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. Well, he asked him three times, please take it away. He said, Jesus said, I could do it. I could take it away. It's not in the Bible, I'm adding this, but the implications there. I could do it, but I won't. You know, when Jesus was on earth, he cast out demons without any trouble at all. Do you think he's any more restricted in that ability now that he has all authority in heaven and earth to cast out a demon? He defeated Satan himself. How can a messenger of Satan be any problem to him? He could have taken him away. But he said, no. My grace is sufficient for you. I want you to learn how to use my grace to handle your struggles. And my power is made perfect in your weakness. You know, if Paul had never had a weak day in his life from conception to his death, if you put all of his perfect, powerful days together, he would not have had as much power as in a little part of a little fingernail on God's right finger, right hand. and God said to him, the Lord said to him, my power is made perfect in weakness. Your weakness. And and Paul recognized, man, if I can receive God's power in exchange for my weakness, I'll take that deal. If that's how God administers his power to me, then I want to have it. And he didn't become sullen. What do you mean you're not going to take this away? This is painful. I, I don't like this. He didn't become... You know, passive, passively resigned. Okay, you know, just going to mope through life. He didn't tell people, "I'm suffering for Jesus." You know, and oh, oh, pity me, woe is me. Aren't I a great guy? And you know, all that kind of stuff. Not at all. He said, "I will be content." I mean, pardon me. I will boast and be content with my weaknesses, so that Christ's power can rest on me. And I think it's important to to, to realize too. I think he still felt weak. You know, when I was a young Christian and read these verses. I remember having a, uh, an experience of conscious weakness, you know, aware of a weakness in my life. And I said, Lord, I know I'm weak. Now let me have your power. And I think I was thinking, although this guy wasn't around in my thinking, that, you know, Iron Man, the guy who's just a normal human being. But when he puts his suit on, he can go rocking through the sky. He can get zapped by lightning bolts and bombs. He can bounce off the earth after falling five miles from the sky and get up and just shake it off and feel the power surging through him for the suit. And I kind of thought, well, God's power is going to rest on me now. Feel that power. and Man, it's going to be a new person. What a, what a great witness it will be. I don't think it works that way. <laughs> I think we still feel weak. We still recognize our human weaknesses. And we rely on God's power. And then we see God's power working through us in spite of it. And we, re- we realize where the power comes from. We know where the power comes from. It's not from us. And I honestly believe that God intends fully to share his power much more fully with us in eternity than we've ever experienced here on earth. He's our father. We're his kids. He wants to share who he is with us, what he has, his power. But he wants, us to, do, he wants to do it in such a way it doesn't destroy us with pride or vanity or taking credit for ourselves. He wants to give us, I don't know if it's unlimited power, but a huge measure of power to rule and reign with him and yet not destroy, be destroyed by it. And to do that, we have to know and recognize and acknowledge where it comes from and that it's a gift. And so God is reinforcing this lesson to Paul. This is from me. It's not from you. This is from me. It's not from you. I want you to use it. I want you to be blessed by it. I want you to enjoy it. But it's from me. It's not from you. Don't get proud. Don't think you're, more, you're greater than somebody else. He wants us to know where it comes from because he, wants, he also wants to entrust us with far more than we're ready for right now. So, 
what was that thorn in the flesh? Who knows? There's all kinds of speculation about it. Nobody knows. All kinds of theologians have debated it. We basically don't know. But I think Paul gives us a hint about his attitude toward it because he lists at the end of the section, therefore I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with difficulties and persecutions. So it's not only suffering for Christ's sake, you know, in, in service. You get persecuted, you get put in jail, you get tortured for your faith. It's everything of life. All of life's hardships, all for Christ's sake. And if we're following him, every difficulty, every weakness, every thorn in the flesh can be used by God to transform us and experience his power. And, and, and again, it's, God, he says, my power is perfected in weakness. He could give us his power, we could burn the world down, you know, accidentally or intentionally or whatever. But my power is perfected in weakness, not only having it, but using it correctly. Perfect power, used perfectly, perfect motivation and attitude for his perfect purposes. He wants us to handle it that way. Uh, and then he trains us to do it as we go through these things. So what is your response to your weaknesses? I'm not as smart as everybody else. I'm not as strong or good looking. I'm not up on a poster. I'm not in a, writing journal articles or whatever. Um, do we get morose? Are we self-pitying? Do we get angry and bitter, uh, passive, whatever? Paul's response was, be grateful, boast, be content in all things, all these things so that we might learn God's power because it is perfected in our weakness. So rejoice every time you find a new weakness. Oh boy, I'm going to learn God's power in another area of life. This is fun. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> so, <clears throat> what is the biblical attitude toward tribulation and trials and weaknesses? Is to exalt? Perseverance, proven character, hope, the love of God. It's to rejoice, being made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Be content and boast. Christ's power resting on you. You know, I've shared this with a few people in little Bible studies before. And once in a while I get a reaction that I, I, I didn't expect at first. It was more like, whoa, this is scary stuff. You mean, and I think some of those individuals were of the attitude that, you know, God is our, our Savior, He's our protector, and He is. And therefore, he's going to help me avoid all these troubles. And to realize that maybe he is going to bring trouble into our lives for his purposes is a little bit scary. Maybe I won't be able to avoid them after all. And maybe he's going to actually bring them into my life. That kind of is nerve-wracking. <clears throat> but I want to relate a little story to you. When I was a first-year resident, uh, we used to carry a pager in those days. And I still have that pager. It doesn't go off very often anymore, but I still have it. And when I get the, uh, the uh, phone extension number 6150, and I still remember more than 20 years later, my stomach would tighten up. I'd begin to break out in a little bit of a sweat and uh, get to be shaking, a little anxious, because it, it was the emergency room. And I knew that they were calling me down there to see someone who was very sick, and uh, I might not know what to do. So I'd, I'd get anxious, and I'd think, I might not know what to do. I might not be able to handle this. I might uh, hurt the person. I might not make the diagnosis quickly enough. Maybe the guy will die while I'm still asking him the history about his parents or something, you know. <laughs> uh, what's your family history? And, uh, and maybe I'll look foolish in front of the emergency room doctors and my fellow residents, and so I'd get very anxious. But about early in my second year, I just flipped in my thinking and, and began to, to realize and, and know and take to heart what I should have known all along. But every time that went off, it was uh, an opportunity for me to learn something. That, that from that patient I was going to learn something new and I'd become a better doctor and the emergency room doctors were there to be a resource and a consultant and, and if I was, was over my head I'd, I could go to them and get help and so, and so were the residents. And so it would, it, would be a, it would make me a better doctor for the rest of my career, each encounter I had. And, uh, and, and it, would, it also freed me up as I had this change of attitude to be more concerned about the person as a person, to be able to minister to them, to encourage them, to pray with them, rather than what is this disease and where can I flip through and find out what the management plan is and all that kind of stuff. And I could start ministering to the person. And so when I would get the page, yeah, there'd still be a little bit of a twinge there, but the attitude was different. It, I wasn't full of anxiety and dread and fear of failure and hurting people and looking bad. But what am I going to learn from this one? What's going to happen this time? How, what am I going to gain in my skills and my knowledge that will make me a more effective doctor? And that's what God wants us to do with our trials. They're going to come, whether we are ready or not or want them or not. But if we understand and know that he is in control and it's a test, it's a, it's a, it's a, a challenge for our benefit, then we can say, well, what is God trying to teach me in this? What am I to learn? How am I going to be a better Christian? How am I going to be closer to the Lord? How am I going to rely on the Lord better? What am I going to learn about the Lord in this situation that I didn't know before? And uh, it helps remove that stress level. So, 
a few points about pain. It's not pain for pain's sake. There's nothing about pain that sanctifies you just because you're having suffering. This is not a masochistic thing. This is not a legalistic self-flagellating of ten stripes a day and make the devil go away or something like that. You know, uh, you don't... It's not just pain for pain's sake. It's, it's suffering and tribulation in the hand of God that he uses, not that we intend, uh, create. And there should be intentionality and joy in it, not passivity. Uh, God wants to teach us creativity to our challenges. So be creative. Uh, can the problem be remo- resolved? Can you figure out a way to solve this problem? Can it be removed? Is there a creative alternative? Can I get help from somebody? If so, go for it. You know, Think through how you can solve the problem. But then there does come those points... <clears throat> When you can't, you've done everything you can, everything ever you know to do, everyone else knows to do, uh, you've tried for years or whatever, it just doesn't seem to go away, then you just have to commit yourself to a loving God to do what is right for your soul. You know, like Peter writes in one of his epistles. And, uh, and trust him for the outcome when you don't see what the outcome is going to be. We're not to seek out trials. We don't need to go looking for trouble. If you are following the Lord, they will come to you anyway. You don't have to ask for them, I guarantee. You know, you, you think of Peter and... Um, uh, James in the temple. They were just going to worship. Guy begging for, for just begging. He says, silver and gold have I none, but in the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. And he did. They get arrested, they get beaten, they get put in prison just for going about their business as a Christian. So you don't have to look for it. It's going to come to you. And that's not a threat. It's just a promise. You know, we're going to have trouble because God wants to teach us things and he wants you to be a witness even to people that don't want to witness. And he is our, you know, Jesus says that he's the vine, the Father is the vine dresser, the vine gardener. And he's a good gardener. He knows when we need sunshine. He knows when we need rain. He'll bring it at the right time. You don't have to go looking for it. <clears throat> and um, he is our Father. I want to tell you one more story. I think that would be about all the time I have. But uh, he is our Father. <clears throat> and we are his children, his sons and daughters, and he loves us. And he is going to take us places we've never been before. He's going to t- have us do things we've never done before for reasons we've never thought of before. Um, <coughs> excuse me. When I was five or six years old, I had a full set of teeth. You can thank me or you can congratulate me on that. Um, and, uh, you know, they're my first set of teeth. And my mother came up to me one day and said, Chris, we're going to take you to the dentist today. I said, hmm, I don't know what a dentist is, but mom's taking me to birthday parties before. She's taking me to the zoo. She's taking me to school. It's probably going to be something fun and good. So, okay. So we go to the dentist and I get plopped in this big leather chair and this shiny metal things all around, big sink with water running in it. And this big guy with a white jacket comes in and says, hi, young man, how are you? And open your mouth and he starts poking around in my mouth. And I thought, well, that's kind of strange, but so far so good. And he says to my mother, well, he's got two cavities. We'll need to fill them. So why don't you go out in the waiting room and I'll go ahead and get to work. And so he, with a big smile, he sits back down. He's got this little metal thing in his hand that's spinning and, and he sticks in my mouth and I felt a pain I'd never felt before. And it hurt. And I started frowning and I started crying and I said, what in the world's going on? Where's mom? Why did she leave me? Where is she? <laughs> get me out of this place. And, and somehow we got through it. He, drew, he finished going and she, she came back in the room and said, well... Uh, we got the first one. We'll do the second one tomorrow. And I thought, man, you should have got them both while you had the chance. <laughs> you know? Well, I went back kicking and screaming the next day, and, and, I, and I screamed and hollered all the way through. And somehow we finished it, and he got it done, and I had two new fillings in my teeth. Well, you know, I didn't know there was such a thing as a cavity. I didn't know there was such a thing as people who dedicated their whole lives to fixing cavities and <laughs> drilling in people's teeth to, to uh, get them out and fill them up with something else. And I didn't know that uh, they, there could be further harm if it wasn't treated. You know, the cavity could extend and ruin the tooth or the jaw or whatever else. You know, just make uh, a lot of harm, bring a lot of harm to me. But my mother knew that, and she brought me to that dentist to fix the problem and spare me from further damage. And so it is with God. You know, He brings us to places that seem that are painful, but for our good, to spare us greater pain, greater loss, greater misery and suffering. And often in these situations, we cry out, God, my God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? And we feel like, and Jesus knows this feeling. He said that on the cross. Why, are you, why have you left me here? Why have you left me alone? And he, he will say to us, I have not forsaken you. I'm right here with you as I've always been. And, and then we say, well, get me out of this thing. You know, this is terrible. And he says, my son, my daughter, I put you here. I brought you to this chair to get this thing that you need to have done in your life for your good. I planned this for your good. Trust me. So we feel forsaken, we feel forgotten, because even as Christians, we don't fully understand his ways uh, or believe that he's in control of all our circumstances. And we live 
unaware that he is a constant presence with us and his continual moment-by-moment care applies even in our worst situations, in the painful work of our lives. And he decided to meet a need in our life. So it's always going to be like this. He's always going to take us to places that we haven't been before, to do things we've never done or experienced before for reasons we haven't yet thought of, because he is like a father to a five-year-old or a two-year-old or a one-year-old. He sees things we can't imagine about ourselves that need to be grown up, and he will correct them because he, because he does love us. And I don't want to be scary that you know, pain and suffering is the only way he does this, but it is one of his tools, and we need to recognize that. And so when these things come into our lives, that we respond with faith, with trust, and we honor him, and we cooperate with him to the best of our ability, and uh, let him have his work with him uh, in our lives. So, you know, I can't claim to have a good answer for everybody. I mean, I could mention all kinds of sufferings that different people have had that we've either experienced ourselves, yourselves, or we've read, read, read about in the papers or hear about from friends or at the organ recitals at church when the pastor prays for so-and-so in the church suffering from whatever. Uh, but I do believe that all these things apply in every situation. And that God wants us to know that. And the key is, of course, to believe and know that God is in control of all of our circumstances. That he loves you far more than you can know. That nothing touches you without his knowledge and permission. That it is what, what he allows is for his glory and your ultimate good. And we need to learn to ask, what does God want to accomplish through this trial? And we may not know a specific thing. We may not know he wants me to go here instead of there or do this instead of that. It may be just he wants me to hang on in faith. He wants me to continue trusting him and do, do, continue doing what I know to do, what he's already told me to do. And in those times when there doesn't seem to be an obvious reason, we just need to remind ourselves again, God is in control. He loves me. Nothing touches me without his knowledge and permission. It's for his glory and my good to bring me closer to him, make me more like Christ, uh, make me a better vessel, a, a better servant in his hand, to bring more light into the world and reflect him more accurately to the world. So that's what I have to share. So I just would encourage you to be, I hope you're encouraged, and I would encourage you to get into the Word and memorize these verses uh, and just go over them again and again. Salt and tribulation. Consider all joy when we get encounter various trials, knowing it perfects me, makes me perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That He's at work in my life, that I can trust Him. He's a good God. He's like my, He is my, He's not like my mother, He is my Father. He is our Father, and He's doing things for our good like any good parent would, and uh, that you can be encouraged by that. So let me close with prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your encouragement. Thank you that we can trust you. Thank you that you're far better than we know, far more loving than we know, far more powerful than we know, and can handle all the circumstances of our lives. Thank you that you have plans for us to show us that you can do that and and, uh, that you have good things in store for us. And we commit ourselves to you and these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a couple of minutes, I don't know if you want to ask any questions or share anything. Others may have other insights that would add to the group, so if you do, I'd be glad to hear it. Yes? Would you be willing to share your PowerPoint with us? Sure. I think it's going to be available through CMDE, I mean uh, through GMHC, but, but yeah, I'd be glad to share it. She just asked if I'd be willing to share my PowerPoint, and yes, certainly. Thank you. I'll hear if, if you'd like to talk afterwards to anybody. Yeah,